Scripture reading this evening is Philippians 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Last week, I got a text from my grandma, who is my most faithful podcast listener. She listens to all my sermons. And the text, all it said was, wow, you went 45 minutes. So I went a little long last week. For, you know, 45 minutes for Presbyterians is like an eternity. So I decided to just preach one verse this week. And I'm going to be real honest from the start. I may go 45 minutes. I don't know. But I'll try not to. Uh, we're going to cover this, this verse, which may seem like a very short uh, statement. And it is. But it, it actually, there, there's a lot to be said, um, especially because of how often Paul uses these phrases. So I'm going to read it again. And I would encourage you to take, take a breath, and, and as I read it, let the words sort of sink into your being. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus, the King of the world. Of all the ways you could start off a letter, the first words out of Paul's mouth are grace and peace. If you, turn your, if you have your Bibles, turn, turn them to the left, and we can go to the book of Romans. We're going to see it here again. Um, Philippians is not the only letter written by Paul. He's, he's written a few. And, and in Romans, uh, he's writing this letter to the city in Rome. If you remember last week, we talked about how Philippi was a colony of Rome. So not technically Rome itself, but we called it Rome away from Rome, right? It was a place that had all the legal benefits of being Rome without actually being Rome. So in this letter to the Romans, Paul opens, a servant of King Jesus calls the apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And he goes on for quite a while. And then he says, all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it again, if you keep turning to the book of Corinthians, all right, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. He starts off Paul called to be an apostle, the Messiah Jesus, by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, I have to slow down when I say that name, uh, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in the Messiah, I'll skip ahead, what grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes a bunch more of these letters in the New Testament to the Galatians, the Ephesians, Philippians, Thess Thessalonians, and in every single one, he begins that phrase, grace and in peace to you. Uh, Timothy, um, as well as, as Titus, we see Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. He's a little twist there. He has mercy. Um, Philemon, another example, uh, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. So you see it over and over again. You get the point. Paul uses grace and peace as his way to greet. He starts every one of his letters, all 13 in the New Testament, with this phrase. Grace, so the word that's being used here that Paul's using in the Greek is charis. It's, it's a word that's a bit odd because in the Greek, the standard greeting, so if I were to go up to you and say hello, I think that might be a standard greeting. Uh, in the Greek, the standard greeting was karin, okay? And so it's kind of a twist on this standard greeting. 
Um, in ancient letters, if you read anything from that time period, you will see almost all of these letters begin with that word karen. But Paul shifts this to, to grace, which also can be translated to the word gift, which we'll unpack more in a bit. So what, what is grace? Right? We hear this term all the time in the church. I've heard it explained to me a hundred times. There are churches named Grace Church. You see, you see this word thrown around all the time. It has some other meanings too. Um, one scholar writes, and I think this is a pretty common understanding, that grace is the free, spon- spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. Another says that the sum total of God's activity towards his human creatures is found in one word, and that is grace. God has given himself to his people bountifully and mercifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is achieved. Now, here's, here's another one, another definition by um, a Greek scholar by the name of Spyro Zodiades. I just wanted to say his name. He's got a cool name. Um, but he says, uh, he writes that which, which causes joy, pleasure, gratifi- gratification, favor, and acceptance. That's joy for you, pleasure for you, gratification and favor for you. It's favored down without any expectation in return. Often the, the, the metaphor I often heard growing up was it's like you're receiving a gift and you did nothing to earn that gift. It was simply out of an act of love and kindness. If you've been around church for a while, that's probably the, the understanding of grace that you have, that, that it is indeed a gift and something that you, you do not deserve. It doesn't require anything of you. It's unmerited, but it is something that is a gift from God. The analogy of the undeserved gift, and I think that is actually a true definition of grace, but I think actually it's bigger than that. The word grace actually has a bigger uh, definition, especially in the context in which Paul uses it. I didn't even think about how we use it in the English. We'll say things like, show me a little grace, right? We'll use it as a phrase, which is kind of code for, I want to be a slacker, so get off my back, right? It's like, use these terms in a way that, that we understand what they mean, but they don't exactly mean unmerited favor in a sense. An example of this um, is in Corinthians, Paul writes, uh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Okay, so what are you talking about here? He's using the word grace, but not, not in the way maybe we might understand it. What he's saying, the effect of grace is that I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but what the grace of God that was, that was with me, or that can be translated what is deep inside me, Right? So grace here is not just an acceptance of something. It's not just an acceptance of God that is deep inside, but rather um, it is grace in this instance is like a power. Okay, In the sense, it's, it's an equipping and, and, and a power within me to be able to accomplish what? Well, if you continue reading, it's to work. I worked harder than all of them. And in context, right, this is essentially Paul being like, I worked harder than the other apostles, then Peter, then James, and he starts listing people off, right? Then John, that power inside of him, that grace inside of him enabled him to accomplish these means. And he says, now brothers and sisters, we want you to know what grace that God has given. And speaking in this context, the Macedonian churches, which are kind of the, the churches that wrap around Philippi at the time. They're in the midst of great, severe trial, and yet they have overflowing joy. 
They're in extreme poverty, and yet they have the joy as if they are rich, right? In this case, when Paul uses the word grace, it actually means something like generosity, that even though they had nothing, they had no money to give, they didn't have excess, they still gave freely. And so in this sense, we see grace kind of have a different understanding. Remember, the word charis can be translated also to mean gift. And so we see this also in Titus, right? When he's, he's urging Titus, um, he says, May the beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love, see that you also excel in this grace for what given for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Here we see it again. This example of that word grace, okay, being used in, in a sense of generosity. The ability to share money when you don't have any. That's grace. One more in 2 Timothy. Um, Paul writes that you may be a son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I actually really love that verse, but I don't, I guess I never really thought about what it meant. Paul essentially is saying, look, you, when you fight, you need to fight like a soldier. You need to complete and work out and exercise like an athlete. Work your tail off. Get off early. Plant the crops before anyone else does. That's grace in that instance. Grace is, is sort of this language to describe what God is doing. It's the empowering presence of God that is deep inside your being. It's the presence by the Spirit, the power of God inside you. That's all grace. One scholar says, grace is the divine energy working in your soul. Another uh, out of Oxford said, grace is the real and redeeming presence of God in Christ within the believer. And so here's my point. In showing you all the ways in which Paul's using this word, uh, I want you to see that it's a bigger word than just acceptance. It's not just accepting the unmerited favor of God. It's a bigger word. And when Paul uses it, it carries that weight. I did a word study um, of this word. I, I have a little program called Accordance, which basically I can plug in a Greek word. So in this case, I plugged in charis, and it, it'll show me every time that word is used in the New Testament. And um, I, did, I spent like 20 minutes on this, kind of got a little obsessed, and I'm, I'm looking through the New Testament. And man, if you're to do you can do this yourself. If you go to Bible Gateway, you can actually do a word study. It's really easy to do. And your mind would be blown about how many different ways this word is used in the New Testament. My favorite definition of grace I stumbled upon was this. And it's from a pastor in Australia called Mark Sayers. He said this, and this blew my mind. It's a little much, but just take it in. The lavish, opulent, raw, uncertain, scandalous blessing of God. Unearned, deserved, illogical, disproportionate, poured out through Christ over every facet of your life and the living presence of the Creator. God, deep inside you, poured out through the Spirit in a flood of euphoric joy, transcendent peace, and limitless power to be and do and live up to God's calling on your life. That's a lot. But Paul is saying that, all of that, for you. Grace to you. And then he goes on to say peace. And the word peace is the, is the Greek word irene. Okay, can I get the word Irene? Anybody named Irene? No? Okay, it's awkward. Um, 
uh, I know some Irenes. They're all really nice, and they really are peaceful, so it works out. Um, we don't really have a, an English word that captures the semantic domain of I- irene. It's, it's kind of a, again, like, like grace, it's a word that doesn't always translate. If you remember um, a f- quite a while ago, we looked at the, uh, in the early Revelation days, we looked at the different words in the Greek for love, right? To use the English word love doesn't always translate from Greek to English because there are, there are multiple different words, whether it's agape love or eros love or phileia or storge. There, there are different words that are used to describe what kind of love you're talking about. In the same way, peace has a similar issue. And one of the, one of the problems with the way we interpret it is in our context, when we think of peace, we really think of it as the opposite of war. So you're either in a time of war or you're in a time of peace. Part of what's interesting when Paul uses this word is Paul's talking about, yes, there is a calmness, right? There is a, a security, a repose that you might experience when you experience peace. But in his case, often this word means in the midst of a trial or a storm, I have irene, I have that peace. So it's war, yeah, but it's in the middle and midst of war that you experience it. Uh, One definition from D.A. Carson, he says, peace is harmony, tranquility, wholeness, well-being, salvation of the total person, reconciliation of persons, which is important because it's plural, okay? So it's not just us individually, but God speaking to a whole community, peace not just for you, but for the whole community, And he gets this, Paul really understands this, because if you know anything about the New Testament, Paul is writing in Greek, but he thinks in Hebrew. Okay, what I mean by that is that Paul was truly a Jew. He really understood and thought in this way. So Paul, a Jew deep in his bones, um, the word for, for peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. Perhaps you've heard of that term. Shalom is indeed the, the Jewish greeting. I went to Israel about five years back with my wife, and I mean, everywhere you go, it's shalom, 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 shalom. You, you hear it often. It's how people will greet you when you are there. And to the Jews, this word actually is more than just hello. It actually carries a deeper meaning. It was a code word for the Garden of Eden. It was a shorthand way of sort of expressing the Genesis 1 and 2 story about the world and the Creator and Adam and Eve and the humans in the garden with the harmony and the beauty and the nakedness and unashamedness and there's no sin, no no injustice, no disease, no sickness. It was as God intended. Shalom. Standing with God on earth and in community. So Paul says, grace and peace to you. But it doesn't stop there. Paul goes on and says, from God our Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ, which, um, meaning the grace and peace is not something that he's bringing to you. No, he's very, very specific. He goes, no, this is grace and peace to you from, not myself, but from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's set out just a little bit because this is actually really important. This is why I'm taking a whole sermon to kind of break this down because these details matter. In Paul's day, if you remember, we talked a lot about this last week, the people in in Philippi are steeped in the Greco-Roman world. There are gods and there are goddesses and they are 
inter- they interact in a very real way with spiritual beings who are not who we would say is the creator of the universe, God, but rather God's plural, which is why you don't stand up in Philippi and say, hey, grace and peace to you from God, because people would say, well, which God? What God are you talking about? Is it Zeus? Is it Poseidon? Is, is it Caesar Augustus? Like, who are you talking about when you say God? And so Paul says, God the Father. That's how, that's how uh, Paul kind of set apart creator, apart the God, the creator God apart from other gods, as he says the words, our Father. And that distinction is really important. More than anything, it shows that Paul is a follower of Jesus. Jesus was the first one to talk about God as Father, as, as sort of a, the creator God as a Father figure. Nobody really talked about God in that way. And there, there's some, you know, in a metaphorical sense, that Yahweh was the Father of Israel, and there's certainly some of that language, but never in such a direct, specific way would anybody call God Father. Jesus would walk around and say things like, Abba, which is Aramaic for dad, or, or, or in a, sort of the central metaphor, right, that you see Jesus using to sort of explain his relationship is that, yeah, yeah God is indeed my father. My father knows what I need. My father knows my will. That's a wildly different way of communi- communicating about who God is. That's really important as a father myself, and for those of you in this room who are fathers, it's Father's Day this coming weekend. Um, a lot of how many people grow up um, experiencing their relationship with their father, oftentimes it, it can become a way in which they view God. And now, I am not anywhere near a perfect father. I'm very flawed. But my job as a father matters. I think of Matthew 6. It says, you don't have to worry what you will eat. Jesus says, don't worry about what you will drink, for my father knows what you need. Um, my, uh, I think about this metaphor because it, it, it really works. My uh, son is six, my other son is four, and they don't worry about whether or not they are going to eat. Right? They care about what they eat, but they don't worry about whether or not they're going to have food on the table. They don't worry about whether or not they're going to have clothes. We, we take care of those basic needs for them, and they don't really stress out about it. Now, when my wife's working, she cares. Um, if I will dress them. And so lately she's been laying out the clothes for me because of some of my choices recently. And then she makes me take a picture as proof, like literally zero trust there. But um, Jesus, in the sense, by calling him father and by demonstrating, look, your father knows what you need. That is defining a relationship between God, not a distant God, like the gods of the Greco Roman world, but a near God, one that cares. This God's about grace and peace, not about a hot temper or selfishness or violence or malignant or, or, or angry. No, God is about grace and peace. So it says, God the Father, and then Paul goes on, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase, if you stop and think about it, sounds kind of churchy and cliche. It's, you know, it's, Hello, I'm here to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't talk like that to just your random neighbor Um, But you have to understand, as we talked about last week, that phrase carries a lot of weight. In Paul's day, it was edgy and dangerous and subversive statement to to claim Jesus as Lord to the Gentiles and to the Greeks. Right? To the Greeks, it's Kairos, it's a 
Kyrios, Jesus, right? So this, this idea that Jesus is Lord. Um, to the Gentiles, Kreos, Christos. Um, Caesar was Kyrios. So Caesar was Lord. And so to say that Jesus was Lord was a very edgy statement. And Paul, in the midst of all that, stands up and says, nope, absolutely not. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is the ultimate power of the universe. He's the center of the cosmos. Jesus rules, Jesus reigns, and that's the end of the story. And by the way, Jesus, the criminal that you executed as an enemy of the state a few, few years back, that's the Christ, the Messiah to the Gentiles, which means king. And so Paul is saying, listen, Jesus is, is the king, not Caesar, not Herod, not Agrippa, not the leaders in Philippi. No, Jesus is the king. Jesus rules. Jesus reigns. And if you say that in that time, that's treason. This is why Paul's in prison, right? Paul said these things. It got him thrown in prison. And so he's writing not from a place of not understanding the dangerous, subversive nature of what he's claiming. Now to the Jews, Jesus Christ was also subversive because well, Lord, right? Uh, for example, Yahweh uh, was the king. And in Paul's day, two-thirds of the Jews uh, lived outside of Israel, and a majority of them did not read Hebrew. Instead, they read the Greek translation of the Bible, which we called um, the Old Testament that was used by millions of Jews in Paul's day. It was called the Septuagint. And it was a translation of the Bible from the Old Testament in Hebrew to the Greek. And when the, tran- uh, the Septuagint translated the Hebrew name for God, uh, which is Yahweh, into the Greek, the word used was kurios. Okay, so you see the connection. The word used in the, the Bible that most of them were reading was kurios, Lord, the same name they used for Caesar on the coin in Philippi. That Caesar was Lord. And Paul's saying, no, he's not. Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay. Hopefully now you get the gravity of this, right? The bigness of what we're experiencing in Paul saying these words. He's saying that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. That he is God in as a person here on earth. He's the same God that was on top of Sinai with thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. This Jewish rabbi uh, who was... Um, from Nazareth, crucified by the Romans, back from the dead, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, which was Messiah to the Jews, which also carried a massive weight because this Messiah had been prophesied for years and years and years, and they were waiting for it with anticipation for when Israel would come to bring in the kingdom of God, the age to come, the new covenant with the Spirit, make the world right, bring in the new resurrection, all things new, God's blessing. We just covered all that in Revelation, so I won't go into all that. Right, but this is it. The time has arrived. This Kairos moment is Jesus. And what's so even crazier about that subversive nature of this is the order by which Paul uses. He says, God, our Father and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, we have this understanding of the Trinity, and the early church had this understanding, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But you have to understand that for Jesus in this time period to put um, the creator of the universe and Jesus in the same breath like that was a very interesting and provocative thing to say. So as a first century Jew, right, in Paul's world, think about what he experienced as a Jew. He would 
Uh, praise the Shema three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then just a few years after the resurrection, that God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, there's equal footing side by side. A, a Jew who said the Shema three times a day, to say that in the same breath was a really, really big deal. Um, I was trying to think of a way to explain this. Um, I was thinking of uh, Joseph, our worship leader. He's, he's really gifted. Him and I uh, went to a Bon Iver concert. Anybody familiar with the band? They're, they're a Grammy-winning band. They're very popular. Um, and uh, it would be kind of like, uh, let's say, for example, I'm, I'm hanging out, and a friend of ours, let's say Libby, came up to me and said, hey, you know, would you tell Joseph for me that he's a really great singer and that uh, when he sings, it's, it's just a beautiful sound. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll go tell him. And I'd go tell Joseph, and he'd be like, oh, that's so nice of Libby to say that. Thank you. Now, if I went to Joseph and said, hey, by the way, last night I hung out uh, after the Bon Iver concert with Justin Vernon. He's the lead singer of the band. We went out uh, for dinner and, you know, just kind of talked about life. And as we were talking, I showed him one of your, one of your services where Joseph was leading worship. And and he goes, wow, that's really great. Would you tell him this for me? Tell him he is the best singer I have ever heard, and I want to go on tour with him. So why don't you give me his contact and all that? Now, if I told that to Joseph, right, that would carry a lot more weight than, sorry, Libby, than, than Libby's statement, right? <laughs> that would carry immense, immense weight. When Paul stands in front of the church of Philippi and says, I have a message for you, Okay, so he's the messenger in this situation. What is it? It's grace and peace, shalom, peace and harmony, all that. Well, who is it from? The creator of the universe. That's big. I don't know if you remember last week, I had you imagine what it would be like to be in the church of Philippi, to be in a place where you were probably looking over your shoulder, to be in a place where there was a lot of military veterans, where there was, there was certainly a, a, a danger and to hear these words from the creator of the universe, man, that has weight. That's from God. Peace to you, God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a few ideas of how we live into this greeting. Because as we've been talking about Paul's letters, that yes, indeed, they're for us, but they're originally written to someone else. Um, but I think it's important to understand how we are to live into this as well. Um, Paul could have started the greeting in, in Philippians with, what's up, you know? Or he could have, my favorite greeting of choice is, oh, dude, right? He could have done that, but he doesn't. He says grace and peace. And I think it's very specific and important. And the reason he does it every single time he starts a letter, it's layered with theology. It's, it's a matter that, a greeting that matters and has weight to it. In fact, in, at the end of a uh, few of the letters, uh, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So we're going to practice that. Um, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We don't take that literally. That would be uncomfortable in our culture. Uh, but that was very much a, a part of sort of the, the, the heaviness and the weight that he, he said these greetings really do matter. And this is why we did the extended four-minute greeting, right? Which really wasn't that long. Um, as an introvert, it always feels long to me, like one minute greeting time. I'm just like, when's it going to end? I'm like, all right, I can talk about the weather, and, and I'm always just kind of stressing out. Um, 
And some of you were like thriving that, like Joseph and, and Lindsay, we couldn't get you to you know, stop talking. And I'm like, we got to get the service started. Like some of you like extroverts are like, yes, I can't wait for the greeting every week. And that's you. Um, that was for some of us, maybe those who are more introverted, a little bit uncomfortable, maybe a little bit out of our comfort zone. But I think one of the things that's really important for us as followers of Jesus is the reality that greetings really do matter. And it matters because people matter. Because in a greeting, whether it's here at church in the beginning before a service starts or whether it's out in life, you have an open window, an opportunity to say to an image bearer of God that you matter, that you matter to me. And even if I don't know you, you matter to this church, you matter to this community and that you're seen and known. You're not just in a sea of faces, not just a number, but you are a human who was made in God's image, who was created and has God's DNA, and that you are seen, known, and that you matter to me, but also to the one who created you, that you were made in his image. Have you ever been greeted by someone who just makes you feel good? Like you see them, you talk to them, and afterwards, like, I feel pretty great right now. Um, one of those people in my life is actually here, Maxine. Every time Maxine greets me, um, she, she grabs my hand, and then she tells me, usually tells me that was like one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Something every time, so I don't know whether I believe her anymore, but um, she always makes me feel really good, um, and she tells me um, how proud of, how proud of uh, uh, me she is, and, and all these nice compliments, and every time I leave thinking, I feel pretty great right now, Right? The simple act of taking the time to greet someone and encourage someone in kindness can do incredible, incredible things. What if, and this is my question, what if as a community, in every conversation, in every greeting, every phone call, every meeting, hey, every email we send, We had in mind the idea that our greetings, that our our moments like these matter, that we are making people seem valued and seen. In fact, I think Paul um, wouldn't really describe grace and peace so much uh, as a greeting as much as he would describe it as a blessing. See, Paul is Jewish, and to the Jews, the idea of blessing goes way back, okay, all the way back to Genesis to the very beginning. Um, the first thing God says over a human is God bless them, and he says be fruitful and multiply, right? There's a blessing there. It was a, always a spoken word to the Jews. A blessing is a spoken word that has power. It breathes life into people. There's a, a line in the Proverbs uh, where the text says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. How true is that statement? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. When you speak over someone, you have the power to bring death, to tear people down to shreds, to rip them apart, to destroy their image, their body image, uh, their confidence and their security. I wish it wasn't true, but the reality is this. We form our identities often by, by things that people say to us. It's part of our human nature. When somebody calls you a negative name, when somebody speaks poorly about you, those things stick and they change how we view ourselves. What people say has power. Language has power because when you speak a word to a friend or a coworker or a spouse, uh, or even more so a parent to a child, like that has legitimate power. 
has the power to tear down, rip apart, to demolish and destroy, or it can do the opposite. One quick story. I'll never forget this. My brother, Mike, is two years younger than me. At the time, I was probably 14. I'd make him around 12. And I'll never forget, there was a friend of ours uh, who lived just around the corner. And I was in that phase of a brother uh, relationship where I thought he was annoying and I didn't want him to come with. I wanted to hang out with my friend. And so I looked at him and said, Mike, you can't come because you're a loser. I know. Not very nice. And what I didn't know at the time is that when I went to my friend's house, he put on a brave face, but he ended up bawling his eyes out. If you know Mike, he's a little sensitive, but still, that was mean. He, he deserved to cry at that time. Um, and he told my dad what happened, and I get a phone call not 10 minutes later. Uh, my dad says, Matt, you need to come home right now. And I go, uh-oh, not good. I get home. My brother's in the car with my dad. And I'll never forget the words my dad told me. He pulls up, and he says, Matt, you never call your brother a loser again. And I apologized to him. I felt terrible in that moment. didn't realize how badly my words cut him. But I internalized that. I still, I remember that story so vividly because I, I didn't know how, how sharp and how biting my words, a simple word, could be on someone. Mike has forgiven me since then. We're best friends. But words have the power to breathe life into someone. It's the power to actually create what doesn't yet exist. I actually believe that when you speak over someone in the name and authority of Jesus in line with the Spirit of God, that you can speak with the power of God something into existence, something that does not exist in their life. And I believe that we can be the conduit, just as Paul was the conduit to deliver grace and peace to the church in Philippi, we can be the conduit to deliver blessing and life that doesn't already exist in someone's life. One of the things that bugs me um, is when I'm with younger parents and they will speak negative words about their kids in front of them, like, oh, so-and-so, he's just so annoying and always getting into stuff. And, and it's like right in front of them, they are speaking these negative words over them. And, and, and they may, kids may pretend like they just shrug it off, but over time, those words are forming them. They're believing the things that a parent may say to them. And that's why with Pierce, I'm always telling him, like, dude, you are smart, you're, you're awesome, you're caring, you're kind. The other day I told Henry, I was so proud of him for being a great big brother because uh, Emma was running around the house with a knife. Um, sorry, Betsy, if you're watching the live stream, I'm confessing for the first time. It's a butter knife, though, butter knife. Um, and uh, he's like, Daddy, Emma's got a knife. And I'm like, oh, no. I ran to the kitchen, and sure enough, she's walking around with this knife. And uh, I grabbed the knife, and uh, I, said, I said, Henry, thank you for being a protective good brother. You always watch out for your sister. Um, speaking blessing, right, over my kids, speaking positive words, these things matter. And people take that in and they absorb it into who they are. And I think we need to recapture this idea of blessing because our greetings matter. They carry power. What you say to your spouse over your kids, to your employees or your employer or to your neighbors or your family you have no idea the Spirit of God is capable of when we do this together. Secondly, um, what 
if we were able to see ourselves as Paul is, a conduit of grace and peace. Paul says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul gets that. He sees himself not as the giver of grace and peace, but as the one delivering that message. There's a line in Matthew that says, Jesus says, freely you have received, now freely. So what? Give. Because you have received, now give grace and peace. You have all this in your lap 24-7. And because you have this free gift, share it. Share that gift with others. Paul carries that, and so do all of us. So here, here's my last point, and I'll, I'll wrap things up here. I'm, I'm really playing dangerous, dangerously with that 45 minutes. So um, we need to understand the language of the New Testament, because sometimes, again, it doesn't always translate well. In the New Testament, according to the New Testament, you're a priest, this language we almost never use in the church, and largely I think it's an overcorrection from Catholicism, which I think they did get some of it wrong when they say there's only one priest. Um, I don't think that's right. I think based on the language of the New Testament, all of us who are in Christ are indeed priests. Um, the priest, whether male, female, young, all of you who follow Jesus, whether for three seconds or 25 years, all of you have this title, in the language of 1 Peter, it's all over the New Testament. You are a priest. You're a channel for the living creator, a vessel, a means for God to work, to flow, to bless people, everyone you come into contact with. And we need to learn to start seeing ourselves as priests, whether it's a priest in your neighborhood uh, whether it's a priest at your workplace, whether it's a priest in your home. I'm, I, speaking of neighborhood, I, I'm working on viewing myself as a priest in my neighborhood. I have a neighbor to my right who does not like me. Um, they, they threatened to tell my employer about my, my, the fact that I had brush on the side of my house. I was waiting to get removed. They threatened to sue me a few times. Um, they don't like me for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it's me. I don't know. But the point is this. I have neighbors on my right and neighbors on my left who have issues with some of the things around our house, and we've been working with them and trying to be kind. But my gut reaction most of the time is not Christ-like. Like what my flesh wants to respond to them is, well, why don't you pick up your leaves? And why don't you brush off the dirt? And why don't you cut your own trees down? Like I'm, I have a natural response that I want to be aggressive and I want, I want to... Uh, vengeance or, or, or revenge, because I feel like in some way they've harmed me. And then I'm reminded, before I send an angry text back to them, that I'm a priest in my neighborhood, that I am I'm representative of Christ. They know I'm a pastor. They were going to tell my employer. She looked me up. She went to my church email. She's she out to get me. Anyway, <laughs> I'm trying to, though, in, in that relationship, so in relationships, whether it's friends family, enemies, representing as a priest, I can still be a blessing even if I don't agree with this person. So all of you, wherever you're at, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's in your office, whether it's at your gym, Planet Fitness, uh, people really need Jesus at Planet Fitness. You can be a priest to those people. Now, Father's Day weekend, fathers, you're priests of your home. You're a channel of grace and peace. Uh, you interact with your kids and your spouse. For mothers, you're a priest of your home, priest of your children. Uh, don't get scared off by that word. You are a priest, a conduit. 
And so wherever you go this week, whether it's to the coffee shop and, and the way you interact with the barista, whether it's uh, going to the gym or whether it's going to the grocery store, remind yourself that you indeed have that call in your life. It's an opportunity to pass on grace and peace to others. Final thought, and I'll, I'll land the plane. Paul starts every single letter with what? Grace and peace. What if we did the same? Every email, every conversation, every relationship. And I don't mean literally, like every time you greet someone, grace and peace, that might throw them off a little. But taking in the, the essence of what it means to be a conduit of grace and peace in everything that we do, by the Spirit of God, that we would be a blessing. What if our starting point was grace and peace with our friends, with our family, just like Paul's letter to the Philippians? Grace and peace. My boys um, are hyper-competitive. They get in a lot of fights. And lately, it's just kind of been a thing. I've, you know, you're trying to mitigate your... Some fighting's good. You're like, yeah, fight. But sometimes it gets a little hand. And um, I, I was thinking, you know, at times as a parent, you get so worked up, you get so upset that I want to just yell at them or snap back. And I was reminded, because this sermon was like in the back of my mind, I'm reminded, you know, grace and peace. Am I, am I setting that tone in my own home? And so when Henry's about to hit Pierce with a stick and, and, and does something that I know is going to upset Pierce, when Emma won't put the butter knife away, when, when there's... there's um, arguments happening, how am I in the world, in my own mundane, everyday life, being a conduit of grace and peace? Let us all ask that question. In your sphere of influence, are you being a conduit of grace and peace? As a disciple of Jesus, we should all be striving for this. So let's do that together, grace and peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your letter that we were able to unpack together I pray that all of us in our, our lives and, and our influences and, and the relationships, maybe even the random encounters with people that we weren't expecting, Lord, may we all be like Paul, a conduit of grace and peace, that we would be a blessing to others, that we would bless other people, pray blessings over them, that we would speak life into people who desperately need it, who maybe in, in their, their upbringing at home never really heard that that we would speak life over people who are desperate to hear how loved they truly are, that your grace is never-ending, that your mercy is never-ending. Lord, help us to be that in the world. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.